We also pay less more or less taxes than our neighboring states. And so all of those things contribute. Now, where we are on the scale when it comes to the overall percentage of our state budget, we're higher than most states. And so I think that when we talk about improvement. Welcome to Idaho Speaks, the place to learn about candidates and issues important to Idaho. My name is Ed and I created this channel to overcome the media bias that plagues our communities and our state. When presented all the information, I believe you, the voter, will make the best decision for our future. At Idaho Speaks, we will give you the side of the story being hidden by mainstream media and big tech giants. Idaho Speaks, your issues, your candidates, your state. Well, thank you for tuning in to Idaho Speaks, continuing our discussion with candidates in important offices. You know, it is so difficult to get people to throw their hat into the ring to lead. And, and you know why? It's because you put your name in the hat, you go up to run for office, and you become a big target. Everybody and their brother is shooting at you, so metaphorically speaking. But it is oh so important. And today with me on the telephone, because I'm so heartfelt for education, I think this is one of the most important positions in the state of Idaho. With me on the phone, I have Debbie Critchfield, who is running to become Idaho's next Superintendent of Public Education. Debbie, thank you so much for taking time to talk with Idaho Speaks today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So uh, let's start just a little bit about you as a person. Let's stay away from politics for just a second. The listeners of Idaho Speaks uh, want to elect people first, politicians second. So tell us a little bit about you, your family, your upbringing, what kind of coffee you like, you know, the important things. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm a diet Pepsi drinker, if that matters for anything. So um, my husband and I have been uh, married for 30 years. 28 of those years have been spent in Oakley, which is uh, near Twin Falls. It's in the Magic Valley area. It's actually directly south of Burley. He is a fourth generation farmer, and we raised four wonderful children they're very active in the community, and when I say community, I'm, I'm stretching that out a little more broadly than just Oakley, but in the, the Magic Valley, Minicaja area. Um, three of our four children are married, and we have one grandson, and then we have um, a, a son that is, uh, well, we have two college-age children, um, and they keep us busy and, and entertained. I became very involved with education when my oldest son uh, was a four-year-old. I was asked to participate on the local uh, PTO board. In fact, um, it was going to be called PTA, but we learned that you had to pay money in order just to use their name. It wasn't for any other reason other than you had to use their name. And so um, it was my suggestion as a new board member that we come up with something else uh, to call it so that we weren't just paying people extraneously for things that, you know, products we weren't using, et cetera. And from that, um, and I actually spent um, a period of time when my children were small being a substitute teacher at our local high school. And uh, that's actually what propelled me to become a local school board member, which I did for 10 years. Five of those I served as the chair. During that time, I was also um, elected to our local library board. 
very interested in reading and um, the organization of our local library. I taught swimming lessons, believe it or not, for about 12 years, and a portion of that time uh, served as a swimming coach. And then there were a number of other community involvements. I worked at our Senior Citizen Center and um, participated on a number of statewide um, task forces involving education as a parent or as a um, local board member. And then um, I fortunately, unfortunately, um, went through a, a bout with cancer and uh, took a break uh, to be healthy. And after that, still had that, that passion and dedication for education and threw my name into the hat um, back when uh, Governor Otter was appointing persons around the state to the State Board of Education and, and was fortunate enough to be able to uh, receive a spot on that. And, and that's where I've, I've been officially as an appointed volunteer for the last seven years. And, um, you know, it, it kind of started off that I was a, um, education was something that I, I did in my free time. And then I realized this is what I want to do with my full time. <laughs> um, I, I care, I care about not only my kids, but I care about parent voices and, and communities. You know, and it's, it's so, I, I feel the passion, you know, it's so important. Education is one of those fields that it just seems like it, it, it gets overlooked. You know, parents put their kids through school. And then the kids graduate and they move on, and so too do the parents. And we forget that somebody's got to stick around and provide that leadership, that that uh, mentoring, if you will, on the way it was. So, so let me ask the big, hairy, audacious question, drive us into the politics side. Uh, why did you decide to run for superintendent of public instruction? For the last seven years, like I said, I've been at the, the state level at the education table. And there have been a number of things that I felt really proud about and, and satisfied with um, as a policymaker or a, an, an initiative or something that, that happened between the board and the governor's office or the board and the legislature. But there's also been so many things that I thought we didn't go far enough. We didn't try to be more innovative. We didn't seek to address the right problem. Um, I don't, I, I've, I've been discouraged at times that I felt that the, the money that has been put towards education at the state level has been very scattershot, that there hasn't been a plan. You know, I ask people all the time, you tell me, what's, what's, the, what's the state plan? What's the state strategy for education in the state? And people look at me, well, um, you know, that's a problem to me, that we don't have this clear vision. And we talk all the time about, problems and this was a problem and that was a problem. And, and what I found is that programs themselves aren't necessarily the problem or the solution, but it, it's people. It, it's, it's a leadership component. And I want to position myself at a different place at that table uh, to be an advocate, to represent the, the voices of Idahoans, to, to protect our children and satisfy the needs that they have, support districts, and make appropriate recommendations for budgeting and have measurable results um, from those investments. Okay. Well, you kind of led into my second question here. Uh, so I, let me ask it because I, I think that it's a slight variation of the way you answered it, but uh, let, let's discuss that together. So when elected, what are three things you will accomplish in your first term in office and why are those your first on your list? I love that question. It's a great one. Um, I think that it, 
it speaks to the fact when you say three, um, and I won't take the time here, but I could really highlight that we have so many priorities out there that, that we're not good at the, what I think should be the most critical places to start. First of all, um, is the budgeting process. I want to go through an audit, a review process of our budget and determine, are we getting the ROI that we want to have, um, with the investments that we're making in the state. Over $2 billion goes towards education in our state. Are we getting the bang for the buck? We say we want to do X. Has that been accomplished? Or are we just continuing to fund programs and things that, that aren't getting us where we need to be? So that taxpayer, protecting that taxpayer investment is very critical to me. I also want to have a highlight on um, reading. I actually, um, we well, I've done a considerable amount of work at the state and local level when it comes to literacy as a general topic, but I think we need to refine a little bit more when we talk about that. Right now we do, we, we tell districts, we want this to be important to you, use your money wisely. We need to train our elementary teachers to be reading teachers. They're not trained like that. They're tra- trained to be generalists um, in the K-8 um, arena. I think there's very specific and deliberate work that can happen with, within that, um, that reading portion. And I want to have a little, well, I'll, I'll make this the third piece then rather than attack on because it's a standalone item in my opinion. We've historically and traditionally talked about the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, I want to add a fourth R and that's readiness. Readiness at, at every grade level, readiness at kindergarten, readiness at ninth grade, and readiness as, as our high school students transition out of the high school arena. And that takes on a variety of forms, but it's still a strategy on how we attack those problems. And we know for high school students, we have industry and the workforce that is dying to have a prepared um, workforce and and labor that that can satisfy these jobs. I want to see more apprenticeships for students, externships for teachers, and I want to um, provide guidance and leadership for districts to partner with local industry so that we can create our own ecosystem where students are leaving the schools prepared for the opportunities that are available in their communities um, and, and help the industry. So the, those three. Those are excellent three. I appreciate that. And you, you can always tell when you've prepared well, because your guest is leading your questions. <laughs> so, so on your website, you wrote, quote, I am a member of the Governor's K-12 through Education Council. I focused on school readiness, literacy, emotional needs for students, and a more precise alignment of state and district goals when I co-chaired Governor Little's Education Task Force. And I was going to ask you, for the listeners of Idaho, can you share your definition of school readiness? Well, you've, you've done that brilliantly, but I'm going to jump to the next one here. By what measurement do you suggest parents or the state measure literacy? I think there's a number of ways that that we can do that. The low-hanging fruit way is uh, when you look at kindergarten through third grade, we have the Idaho Reading Indicator as a statewide assessment so that we can compare apples to apples regardless if you're in in Salmon or if you're in Declo, Idaho, that we're able to look at those things. Another way that I know that that we are successful is when we look at... um, grade to grade when we follow cohorts of grades and, and teacher feedback and what kind of remediation, what kind of, um, uh, not preparation, but satisfying 
um, the academic needs as we move from grade to grade. To me, it's an absolute shame that we get students that would get up to the ninth grade. I, I was visiting with some teachers recently who tell me there are constantly students that come into the high school arena that don't know how to read. And so there are ways outside of assessment, the, the traditional type of pen and paper or computerized um, assessment, that, that we can uh, begin to see that. We can also hear from parents. Parents are the experts on their kids. Teachers are the experts in the classroom. And when you combine, combine those forces and we have conversations where we understand where kids are, we're better able to customize the needs and the instruction uh, to help students be, to be successful. And so districts have writing assessments and, and there, there are a variety of, of ways that we can do that if we are all focused on that as the goal and working towards that end. Well, and, and again, I have to share this for the listeners. Debbie and I did not compare notes before we started. Uh, so <laughs> the fact that she's leading into all of my questions, do not read into that, please. But so, Debbie, uh, I don't know if I should say I'd be you know apologetic or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I'm an engineer, and um, okay. when I when I did my work as an engineer, facilities engineering, I had to uh, produce uh, provide matrix and verification that I delivered upon what was spec'd. What was on the drawing, I had to make sure that it was built to spec. So public school review, and it's just one website out there, but uh, they kind of coincide with all of the other reports, even what the state of Idaho reports. But public school review reports on only 45% of Idaho students test proficient in math and just 55% test proficient in reading, kind of supporting what you just said about students showing up in the ninth grade of high school and they don't know how to read. Let me ask you first question, what should those numbers be and how do you plan on getting Idaho students to that standard? Well, I, I can't imagine having any other answer for the number other than 100%. I don't know of anybody, any family or any parent in the state that says, well, it would probably be okay if it's 98% and my kids are in that 2%. We, we need to work um, as diligently and as um, eagerly for every, every student and, and have that as our goal. Now, as far as how we get there, one of the things when we talk about, um, or when I talk about my experience on the State Board of Education, I don't want just to talk about improvement, but I, I want to talk about measurable results. And I also don't want to just talk about reporting, but I want to talk about accountability for outcomes. And I don't believe that we have had true accountability. And I don't see, well, not I don't, I also have seen misdirected accountability. It's a, it's a shared accountability within the state. There are certain roles for certain people at certain levels. And my experience has been, and what I've observed, that when things, when the achievement levels aren't what they need to be, that the default has been to the teacher. Now, I'm not trying to take the teacher out of the equation because everything about research shows that they're the most important part of that equation. However, Policies, investments, local leadership, all of these things 
play a part in the overall success and productivity of a local district. But we don't spend hardly any time talking about the local board and how the local superintendent influenced and, and set the culture of that. And, and I believe that when we look at who's accountable for what and how, that we can then actually begin to have real accountability instead of just reporting the data. That doesn't tell us anything. It, I guess it checks a box for transparency. And we could say, well, we all know that we're doing poorly. Okay, well, that's great. Let's go on to the next thing. I, I don't want to do that. I, I want to have a conversation of who should be doing what, what role, how do we help support you to be successful, and then how are we going to know that we got there? We're not ha- we have not had those conversations in the last seven years. Excellent. I, thank you. I appreciate the answer. Now, in your website, um, you reference uh, emotional needs. So how do you see a school addressing the emotional needs of their students? There's a variety of ways that that can happen. And I have had uh, local experience in my home district of Kaja County um, working on that, that thing. I want to say this first and foremost, that I do not believe that a school is a replacement for the, the role of a parent in this area. What I do believe and have seen be an effective resource is a school where they can support a parent in what a parent needs. So when a parent has um, or a child has a crisis, most of the time parents that I talk to, um, they, they're not sure who to call. Do I call the emergency room? I, I'm not sure what to do. Do we call the school counselor? The school can be a great resource and can leverage resources in the community to support the parent. And, and so when I talk about um, behavioral and emotional health for students, everything in my mind is, is directed at how we help support the parent in what they do with their child. Um, I've got, uh, I, I've worked with a local board member here in Kaja that um, we created a, a program that we call Connect that helps connect parents with the support that they need to help their child. Um, there's a number of ways from just generally talking about these ty- hard topics at school and, again, opening up conversations. But at every point, I feel very strongly about how we help parents help their child, not replacing or supplanting um, the role of a parent. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. You know, when when I see, and I know many of my listeners, when they see emotional needs in the campaign literature for anything related to education, what pops into mind is critical race theory. Um, I, I think we have a different term that's being used here in, in Idaho, um, uh, emotional uh, readiness. Um, there's, there's another term for it. But are you in any way, shape, or form in support of critical race theory being taught in schools? And if so, why? If not, why not? No. Um, and, I, and I will take it broader than that because I think um, every, it comes back, we have these conversations um, frequently and from time to time, and it, it gets packaged differently. And so now we're talking about critical race theory. But I think at any point where we have material or curriculum that um, teaches a child to come to a, a particular conclusion or a certain ideology, or right now that inherently one race is, is a suppressor or, or, or oppressor or has been suppressed, 
that is completely outside the realm of anything that, first of all, minors should be exposed to, but any type of teaching that leads someone down, this is how you need to think about it. And um, what I believe needs to happen on the state level, there we need to, the state has a role to support the local decision making. As we understand, boards are charged through statute as one of their stewardships as an elected person uh, to approve and adopt any materials that come into the, the school classroom. What I am learning and hearing and seeing, first of all, many school boards don't understand that ultimately that is their responsibility and, and it's been delegated elsewhere. Or there's been a breakdown of a process where the community didn't feel as though they had the opportunity to view the material. Another issue that I've seen School districts that haven't had the funds or for whatever reasons have delayed a curriculum adoption. Teachers have gone outside of the process to find free curriculum to supplement a book that they don't use anymore. In all of these cases, there's been a breakdown of the process. And, and I believe as the state superintendent, one, you help remind and support boards of what they can do. I also think that the, the state has a role in pointing direct districts towards curriculums that maybe are not the national publishers that have a lot of money to come into the state. There's a lot of great curriculums out there. But if you're in Three Creek, Idaho, you don't have the personnel to go out and, and seek these things out. And it's not about making the decision or micromanaging the process, but it's about providing the information so that local districts are in the best position possible to support their learning objectives and to protect their students and to reflect the attitudes and cultures of their community. When people are reporting on the status of Idaho education, Idaho schools, they often do it in comparison to we're 49th out of 50th when it comes to per pupil spending. Where do you come down with regards to expenditures per student versus, you've already mentioned, a performance-based measurement? But how do you come down on this idea that it's just about how much money you spend per kid? Well, my, um, my experience in 17 years of education between the local and the state level is that uh, an experienced and great teacher could, could teach with a stick in the dirt in the road. Now, having said that, resources and, and those types of things are important. Data itself, out of context, doesn't do us any good. And so we say, yes, we're, we're 49th. But then you, you factor in some other parts of that conversation. We're also the least regulated state. We also pay less more or less taxes than our neighboring states. And so all of those things contribute. Now, where we are on the scale when it comes to the overall percentage of our state budget, we're higher than most states. And so I think that when we talk about improvement and, and you know, I, again, I, I don't want just improvement for improvement's sake. We want to actually be able to measure our results. That it, it takes in the conversation of investments and money, but we also have to talk about other, all the other pieces that we've, we've talked about, supporting parents, helping students. Students need to be engaged themselves. They, they have a role to play here. And then how does the state then set the goals and the priority, determine what monies need to go there, and then how are we going to measure our results and know that we were successful? This is not a formula that, I, that I've observed. And so I, I know I'm kind of, I don't, 
I'm not trying to take a bird walk away from your, your conversation, but when we talk about money, there's so many other pieces of that. It's not simply about the, the per pupil amount. No, we I- will have a surplus. Well, we've got a surplus right now, and I think there's all sorts of conversations about, well, what do we do with this? Do we give it to education? Well, maybe, but let's have a plan first. Let's not get the money before the plan. Marvelous. And I think that's what the listeners want to hear the most. How do folks learn more about you and your campaign? Debbie for Idaho, and that's the number four. Um, dot com. I'd love for people to go visit the website and there's ways for them to contact me. So I'm not going to give um, emails and other things like that because you can find that on the website itself. And so reach out and I'm, I'm traveling around the state. I feel that I have a, an important message to share. I want to restore the value of an Idaho education. I want it to mean something. I want it to count. I want to feel proud of it. And I want to know that our investments are properly uh, placed and, and guarded, and, and I want us to work together as a state, and, and I feel that, that I've got the, the skills to do that. Well, and your passion bleeds through the telephone. I appreciate that. Anything, anything else you want to share with the listeners before we close the episode? I, I just appreciate the time. Um, visit the website, and I, I'd love to visit with people. And um, Idaho, we are a, a uniquely wonderful state. We're, we're diverse geographically in other ways. But we also have have a feel here, and that's why people are moving here. I want to maintain that. I, all those good things about our state can be better, and uh, we, we can do this for our students and for our state and for ourselves. Marvelous, Marlon. Well, thank you so much for coming on Idaho Speaks. Thank you. We've reached the end of the episode, but not the end of the issue. Please share this episode with your friends and family. If you have questions or would like to share your own issues and ideas, visit www.idahospeaks.com and click Share an Issue. Your state, your voice, Idaho Speaks.